Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about um, the concept of onboarding or introducing new players to the hobbies of RPGs in general, um, especially players who are not necessarily uh, driven to it, I, I suppose is the way to put it. Players who are enthusiastic, certainly, in the game, but who aren't going to go out and buy lots of books and aren't going to read lots of books and all that sort of stuff. Basically, kind of players who are are content to be amateurs, essentially. I say that as if uh, I am some sort of pro at RPGs, and I certainly play a lot, but I don't... And, and run a fair bit too, but I don't, I think that's a little bit of a uh, silly distinction in some ways, but it, it maybe helps to think about, you know, there's, there's different degrees of investment within the hobby in general. And what I'm talking about is sort of a, a fairly low degree of investment beyond actually showing up and playing the game, that that's all that these players want to do. And so... I'm going to talk about kind of what I think works for that, what I think doesn't um, in and what in my experience, what my experience has been with um, those sorts of players. And in this case, it's specifically my family. Um, I've played a couple of sessions now with uh, my parents and my little sister and her boyfriend and uh, my grandfather now too. So um, have some kind of experience under my belt bringing in new players to the hobby. And I thought I would uh, say something about that and kind of what, what has worked for me. So let's get into it. So let me start by talking a little bit about um, who I think this is for. And I think the big thing this is for is for somebody who really enjoys RPGs and who is perhaps related to or around or for whatever reason is in a situation to introduce someone who is not as much into that as they are and who they don't expect to ever become as much into that. Like I said, there's there's plenty of people in the hobby who, I mean, I see complaints on our RPG basically every day from DMs about my players won't read the rules, and that that's a thing. There's there's plenty of people in this hobby who are not interested in sitting down and reading rule books in their free time, who are not interested in putting in the work to plan and prep a game and all that sort of stuff. Plenty of people who just want to kind of show up, have a good time at the table and not do anything else the same way, you know, uh, for example, one of my buddies, excuse me, Jason Hobbs likes to play poker. And I gather that he is a pretty regular player. Well, actually a couple of my buddies, cause Sean, Sean P also plays poker. Um, and he, I think both of them are much more serious poker players than for instance, I ever was, even when I played it some in high school with my friends. Um, we never played for money or anything like that. Um, and obviously there are a whole number of levels to people playing poker, right? There's, there's plenty of people 
who play uh, for no money, people who play for, you know, beer money, people who play for professional amounts of money, right? Whose income is playing poker. Um, and the whole range of those players, I think, is represented in a lot of hobbies, right? There's there's people who are lucky enough to be able to make a, a serious income from playing or running RPGs, which is really cool that that exists. Um, I'm super jealous because I would love to be able to do that to make a serious income, but um, that's not uh, that that seems unlikely to be in the cards for me, just to be honest. Um, seems like not a lot of people can make that happen. Um, and that's totally okay. That's that's not what I was intending to talk about. What I really was getting into is this idea that there are a lot of people in the hobby or adjacent to the hobby with very different um, levels of buy-in to the hobby. And in particular, so what I decided was that it would be fun to play RPGs with my family and that they would probably have fun. And so the, the first time we played, I think it was my dad and my little sister and her boyfriend playing. We played Feng Shui 2, and that was a lot of fun. Um, we kind of, the whole family group that has had varying members over the course of the different things has mostly only played one-shots. We played Feng Shui 2. We played Barbarians of Lemuria. We played Icons, the superhero game. We have recently been playing the Hero's Journey Second Edition, um, and I think we're I think we're going to shift that. I think we're going to pivot, um, or rather, I know we're going to pivot because I sent out the email just you know like an hour ago, um, suggesting that we pivot games to Robin Law's Hero Quest. Um, but that's kind of an overview of the games that we have played. Um, and I think many of them have worked pretty well. There are a couple of things that I would suggest are important in games that onboard new players. So one of the things is um, I think it helps very much to have a game that uh, emulates or in some way performs in the style of a type of narrative, uh, a genre, or a thematic space, or a tone, or something like that, that the players are going to be already familiar with. That's not to say that you can't explore new things, but I think one of the things that sort of um, becomes a problem almost with something like D&D, that D&D has a long history, and D&D as a fantasy environment is different than a lot of other fantasy stories that people are going to be familiar with. It's kind of, you know, it's got elves and dwarves like Tolkien, but it's not really, certainly not anymore that Tolkien-esque. Um, it's not Robert E. Howard's Sword and Sorcery. It's not even really, um, like, I'd argue it's in a lot of ways kind of unlike most, if not all, fantasy literature, even some of the fantasy literature that is spawned from D&D, I think has, it has kind of moved away from, or it doesn't represent that terribly well in a lot of ways. Um, but that's kind of a separate argument. 
Whereas, for instance, with Feng Shui 2, one of the reasons that I chose Feng Shui 2, Feng Shui 2 is about uh, action movies, right? It's about over-the-top action. Everybody at the table has seen over-the-top action movies. Everybody, uh, we, well, I know that everybody had seen The Raid um, because we had all watched The Raid together. Um, But, you know, The Matrix and John Woo action movies... Isn't he one of the the famous action directors? And, you know, um, I already mentioned The Matrix. Um, but even stuff like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or... Um, you know, all sorts of... I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with a long list of examples, and I, I really shouldn't because Robin Laws, who designed Feng Shui 2, has a really good book called Blowing Up the Movies, which is basically about how to play out um, stories in RPGs similar to a number of these famous movies, um, particularly with a focus on playing it out in Feng Shui 2, but it's it's sort of ideas that you could use in any campaign in a lot of ways. Um, although feng shui too is definitely the, the focus anyway, the, the whole point of all that is to say that the players already knew what action movies are like. And so it was very easy for them to get into the spirit, get into the fiction of the game and play along and add to the fiction, engage with the fiction, all of that sort of stuff to, uh, have fun. You know, my dad is a huge fan of James Bond movies and he played a, a suave international spy character who is basically just based on James Bond. And he, you know, had a great time getting to be a James Bond character in a game and already knew all of what he needed to know about how that character played and how that game was going to play out and how the fiction was going to go in that game because he was already familiar with the material that Feng Shui 2 was emulating. So that's one piece that I think is a good idea, not necessarily for every game, uh, but it's, it's definitely something I think that's worth considering. Another piece that I think is worth considering, strong core mechanic. Um, I think that the the less different kind of types of roles there are um, in a game where you have kind of one single type of role that defines almost every role that you make, that is really easy to follow along with in many ways. Um, and part of my point about that is that you want, or at least I think you want, when you're onboarding new players to you right. It's it's teaching them to fish, not giving them a fish, right? You don't want to say, okay, roll the dice, and then the DM will just interpret what the dice means. You, or at least I think, it's a much more fun and it's a better experience for everybody if they roll the dice and they can understand what that means and all that sort of stuff. And to that end, having a core mechanic really. Um, drives home that concept that if they only have to learn one type of die roll, right? If they only have to learn a D20 plus modifiers and their modifiers are all written down on their sheet, 
that's much easier to learn than saying, okay, sometimes you want to roll D20 high, sometimes you want to roll D20 roll under, sometimes you want to roll um, all these others, sometimes you want to roll a percentile for special skills, all of that sort of stuff. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about in the example is kind of classic AD&D. Um, but AD&D is not the only game that does this. More generally, I think it's a... Um, Not every game has a strong core mechanic, and some of, I mean, some of my buddies even uh, say that they don't like core mechanics as much because they may think it makes everything feel kind of samey. Um, I kind of go back and forth on that. I can appreciate games that uh, have a lot of different kind of types of die rolling and mechanic, and as somebody who is kind of really into RPGs, I think it's easier for me to to remember what each die roll is supposed to be and and think about that and kind of know instinctively what I'm trying to roll and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's, you know, by now kind of second nature for me. But especially for new players, that's not going to be, right? If you give them a sheet and say, okay, for attack rolls, you want to roll a d20 high. And for attribute checks, you want to roll a d20 under the attribute. And for um, proficiency checks, it's like the attribute checks if you use the proficiency number. And for thief special skills, you roll a D percentile and you check that versus trying to get under the percentile level. You're going to have a much harder time of the players kind of instinctively knowing, first off, what they need to roll in a given situation based on what they're trying to do, how to interpret the role and what and and what the role actually means and i think that um both of those combined make it harder for players to interact with the fiction often that um especially if they they i think one of the things that can happen is that players will get um role averse basically they'll get a little essentially gun shy they'll they'll get a little more worried about because they can't intuitively understand like, Oh, this is what I need to do. This is kind of how this is going to work. Um, a, they're going to feel very dependent on the DM. And that I think is not a great feeling often. Um, and B, they're going to not have a sense of like, here's what my character can do and here's what they can't do. And here's what I should try to do and all that sort of stuff. So you'll notice that a lot of the games that I talked about all have strong core mechanics. So feng shui two, you roll a positive die and a negative die, and you modify your specific attribute or skill or whatever it is that you're using by the, the sum or the net result of the positive and the negative die. And there's six-sided dice. So your average modifier is a zero, basically. Um, Barbarians of Lemuria... 2d6 plus modifiers, trying to get a 9 or higher. I even play Barbarians of Lemuria instead of the kind of finicky modifiers that are like, oh, sometimes you're trying to hit an 11, sometimes you're trying to hit a 7, that sort of thing. I just say, nope, it's advantage or disadvantage. If you have advantage on the roll, you roll 3d6, keep the two highest. If you have disadvantage, you roll 3d6, keep the two lowest. And that 
I don't remember what that works out to. It's like a, a change of two and a half or something on average. I don't maybe two on average with the D6s. I don't remember exactly. But for me, that is much easier to um, not justify, but to explain to the new player to say like, oh, you're in a situation, right? You've got a crowbar to pry open the door. Give yourself advantage, basically. And I think that if you can do that consistently, the part of the point is that players will learn what gives them advantage and what gives them disadvantage and will get a real sense of um, how they should be interacting with the fiction to give themselves those advantages. Um, what else did we play? We played icons. Icons is uh, similar to Feng Shui 2, except that technically it's... Um, the player rolls one d six and adds their modif and adds their uh, stat, versus the adversary that they're opposing rolls one d six and adds their stat, and then based on the difference between the two, there's an outcome. But still, very consistent core mechanic, very straightforward. There's some other stuff in icons um, that's really cool, and it was a neat way to add kind of like a a uh, fate style. Icons has built into it a sort of fate style um, tags system where basically you you create tags and you say or you discover tags or, or qualities, I think they're called. Um, and then you can use up determination or sometimes do it for free to, to use those qualities so that you can, you know, improve your die roll, that sort of stuff. Anyway, um, yeah, icons. Icons was a lot of fun, and you'll notice a strong core mechanic. And icons also is a system where the genre influences are very, very obvious, and um, the idea of playing kind of cartoony four-color superheroes. People are familiar with that concept. Certainly, everybody that I was playing with was familiar with that conceptually. Um, and therefore was able to get into the spirit of things, get into the fiction and all that sort of stuff very, very quickly. Finally, um, but what we've been playing recently is The Hero's Journey. And The Hero's Journey 2nd Edition is a great game. It uh, definitely has some strong OSR influences, and there's some tweaks that I made to it, so I let the characters roll... Um, Basically, for every multiple of D6, I let them add one extra D6 and drop the lowest for their attributes. So the way it works in the game is a little bit different than the standard 3D6 down the line um, because it uh, sometimes it's 2D6 plus 6 or 2D6 plus 1, depending on your character's lineage, their, basically their race. So I let them roll, in the case of... 2d6 plus 6, if that's what it said on the in the book, I let him roll 3d6, keeping the highest 2, plus 6. Um, if it says 3d6, then I let him roll 4d6, keeping the best 3. That sort of thing. Um, so that, and I think that was good. Um, the game, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on the kind of like average heroes thing. The idea of like 3d6 down the line, you don't start as anything special. 
type stuff. Um, just because, uh, well, there, there are a number of reasons. Part of it is, um, that I often don't think that's as much fun and it, it, uh, specifically in the idea that it makes less capable characters. And I really like playing capable characters. Um, I also really like running systems with capable characters. Um, it also, I think, doesn't do a great job necessarily of representing the kind of stuff that we see in the sort of fiction that is being um, referenced about heroism, particularly if you're doing 3d6 down the line and starting at first level, I think you, what naturally happens is that more than likely you end up going through churning through a couple of characters until you get one that can basically stick the landing. Um, and if you look at the kind of fiction that, uh, the hero's journey is supposed to emulate. I think many of the characters, if you were modeling them, would start out at a uh, a higher level. Gandalf is certainly at no point in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings a level one wizard. Um, Bilbo and Frodo probably start out as level one characters. That makes sense to me. Um, and they, as a result, see the most growth over the course of their stories, right? That not just in power, but also in kind of character development. And I, I see that often as kind of a, um, a sign of a character going through the levels in a level-based game is that who, who is getting the most kind of character development um, because it's events happening kind of early within the arc of their character. Um, and because it, uh, Obviously, a lot of fiction doesn't have nearly as much kind of powering up, leveling up type stuff. There's some of that sometimes, but not not nearly as much as a lot of RPGs do. Anyway, The Hero's Journey 2nd Edition, great game. Has some distinct OSR influences, but it also has some kind of story gamey stuff to it. Not a whole lot of really story gamey stuff. Um, and some interesting kind of non-OSR things. I mean, it has, like, for instance, it has six stats, but they're not the same standard six stats. Um, there's some really clever stuff in terms of uh, genre emulation because it's designed, it's basically designed for um, upping the kind of Tolkien influence and uh, Ursula K. Le Guin influence and um, all of that in early D&D, and so it feels a lot more like The Hobbit, and characters are just assumed to be kind of, adventures are assumed to be basically good people who are trying to help out and do good things and all that sort of stuff. Um, similar to The One Ring, where basically every character is assumed to be not necessarily super good, but good on the whole even if they have kind of a dark streak that will get exploited by the shadow and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, I keep saying the, the hero's journey second edition is a good game and it is, I don't think we're going to keep playing it. Um, and that is because it has a fair bit to keep track of for new players.
basically. That's kind of the core reason. For players who aren't as familiar with the way that the various subsystems work and who aren't as familiar with the way that um, classic D&D plays, I think there's a little bit much of kind of special special things going on basically essentially rules exceptions or stuff like that um which is really cool and i think for veteran role players it would work really well but for um relatively uh fresh role players people who don't have nearly as much experience and aren't going to be nearly as kind of invested in getting really really familiar with the game and all of that sort of stuff um, it's just, I don't think it's going to work as well, um, with some of these kind of, I think what would happen is that the characters wouldn't feel particularly differentiated. The, the players wouldn't remember their special abilities so much. Um, I would have to remind them of all of those things. And ultimately it would, um, not feel like we were really taking advantage of the system, right? That realistically it uh it wouldn't it it wouldn't really use the hero's journey second edition to its full potential so we're i don't think we're going to play the hero's journey second edition um continuing i think what we're going to do instead is play robin law's hero quest and that's what I'm going to talk about next is why I decided to switch over to Robin Laws' Hero Quest and um, why I think it will be a uh, a better fit for my players. So the system that I settled on for playing is actually Hero Quest, which Hero Quest has both a generic version, which is, is technically Hero Quest Second Edition, and apparently there is a new version coming called Quest Worlds. Um, but then there's also Hero Quest Glorantha, which is the Glorantha version of Hero Quest. We're not going to be playing in Glorantha. We're actually going to play in the same world that we started the Hero's Journey in, which um, I basically hadn't done enough prep for our first session of the Hero's Journey. So I basically just went into one of my folders where I kept a lot of images from when I ran the One Ring and Adventures in Middle-Earth and was like, all right, these will do. Put them up on Roll20 and came up with a story. Okay, you guys are um, people who live in Woodmantown, which is at the edge of the Great Forest. And... Uh, there's an elf and the elf needs escorting back to the elven king's halls and there's trouble with goblins going on and you guys can volunteer to to be uh, escorts for this elven uh, envoy and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, very, very much Mirkwood and Tolkien and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I think that the players liked it. I think they enjoyed having a kind of a less less historical feel, right? There are some fantasy settings that feel like they're very um, historical. And I don't mean like low fantasy. I mean in the sense that they um, have a... Uh, 
a a backstory that is much more important than the front story, essentially. Um, whereas one of the things that I like in a lot of my, when I try to come up with things, partly because I don't do a whole lot of kind of heavy world building stuff, is I always want to make sure that the front story is more exciting than the backstory, right? The the events of 2000 years ago might have some relevance to today if it's like, you know, that's when we fought the Dark Lord. But I don't want to, you know, waste the player's time telling them about my cool backstory to the world when we could be playing and exploring their characters and having fun with their creation. Anyway, that's that's kind of just me. Although I think it's generally a good idea, especially if you're playing with uh, fresh players, to uh, make sure that their heroes are the heroes of the story, right? You want them to be upfront and important and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, Hero Quest. Hero Quest definitely fits the strong core mechanic uh, criteria. Hero Quest, the way it works is you roll under a target number on a d20, and you compare the success or failure of the player who is attempting to do something versus the obstacle. Uh, and this is the same for all obstacles. So um, trying to get over the pass at Carhadris is the same type of role as trying to subdue the Goblin King, excuse me, as is trying to uh, overcome the lure of power of the One Ring. All of that sort of stuff is the same type of role, essentially resolved in exactly the same way. So, that's really good. Um, the narrative or... The uh, the genre emulation thing, we're going to have to see. Hero Quest, I think, is really good for emulating storytelling, right? That it, as a system, works really well, legitimately works really well for telling RPG stories that feel like stories in other uh, media, Right, that it feels like the the pacing and events of a, a good novel or a good TV show or a good uh, film, if it's a good hero quest session. It's going to be a little questionable because it is a generic system. It doesn't have so much kind of built-in rules for stuff. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna see. We're gonna find out what. Um, what works and what doesn't. It also, I'm a little bit worried about the way that HeroQuest handles task resolution rather than, um, or conflict resolution rather than task resolution. Because HeroQuest, if you don't know, part of the idea is that you basically are rolling to determine how a conflict pans out, not how one single task or one single element pans out in general. There's a... Um, a special type of contest, a, a basically an extended contest that um, works a little bit differently. But in general, what you do is, for instance, you say, oh, there are goblins ahead. I want to drive them off with my bow and you roll. And that's to represent you, you know, shooting a couple of times to try to drive them off, not you um, taking a single shot and killing the first goblin, right? Makes sense conceptually, 
Um, and I think it will actually work pretty well for new players who are not as used to um, the general way that RPGs are structured, right? That with fresh players, they will be able to grok it more quickly, I'm hoping, because this is just how uh, narrative is resolved, right? This is more, I think, more naturally how narrative works than it is uh, how a lot of RPGs work. And that, um, aside from being interesting on a kind of conceptual level is also, I think, uh, an advantage in terms of teaching the game to people who don't necessarily, aren't necessarily super familiar with the way that other other RPGs work. Um, so yeah, I have I have high hopes for HeroQuest. I think it's going to be pretty fun. Uh, we are going to have to see how it actually works out. Because, um, obviously we haven't played it yet, but we are playing it tomorrow evening. I'm recording this Sunday night, and we are playing on a Monday night. So, you know, we'll see. And hopefully it is a good way to onboard new players. But, um, more generally, I think I'll, I'll, before I do the outro, I'll go back to the big things that I talked about in terms of what I think are goals for teaching players new games. And that is get them a game where they can get immersed in the fiction very quickly and very smoothly and get them a game where they can understand and um, interpret and understand the, uh, resolution mechanic the the die rolling in most games very quickly right strong core mechanics strong genre influences all of that stuff i think makes for a better introduction to rpgs than for instance throwing them off the deep end or not not off the deep end but basically starting them with something that doesn't have those advantages um in in particular i think a lot of times people assume that the best RPG to start with is one that you want to play a long campaign of. And long campaigns are certainly fun. I would say that if you're just starting out, play play a one-shot with a simple system with a strong core mechanic and that players are going to be able to get involved in the fiction in very, very quickly. Because that's A... That's likely to be what gives them a really good experience to get them to come back for a long campaign. Um, and B, it's uh, long long campaigns have a lot of pressure associated with them. They um, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of reasons to at least try start small. Start with a one shot. Start with just you know a one shot for new players that gives them a chance to have fun and and gives them a chance to do awesome stuff. I think that's another I think basically everyone who plays RPGs one of the the sort of core reasons that you play RPGs is to do whatever sort of awesome things it is that you think are awesome, right? And so for some people that's to, you know, monologue and for some people that's to kill a horde of baddies and for some people that's to get really involved in the math and all of that sort of stuff so that they can um, 
defeat every challenge. But in general, I think some systems are going to be better suited to doing that sort of cool shit, basically. And uh, that's another thing I would say for for picking a system to introduce to new players is pick one that allows them to do cool shit, right? Pick don't don't pick a game unless these are players who really like the idea of like hiding behind cover and you know ducking looking out every once in a while to take, you know, pot shots at the other group who's hiding behind cover. Most people are going to be more interested in the kind of like dive across the table shooting action scene sort of thing. In which case, play that because there are games for that. There's there's tons of games. We are absolutely in a golden age of game design. Who knows if that's going to last after the play, but um, at least for now, there are tons of games out there. And it's really just a matter, it's, uh, I think it's a lot like movies and books and TV shows and basically any other media. Rarely is there somebody who so thoroughly does not like the medium that you can't find something that they will like. It's just a matter of finding that thing, right? You know... I don't think there are very many people who so thoroughly hate the experience of watching a movie that they can't stand to watch any movie at all. More likely, they don't like very many movies, but there are probably some that fit because there's so many movies out there. Probably some that are at least watchable and somewhat enjoyable and would, you know, break down the... Uh, the barrier essentially. And in the same way, I think that's true of RPGs is that it's, it's about finding the right game for the right fit. It's about um, figuring out what people will like to play, giving them an enjoyable first session and then get them through that enjoyable first session, get them to come back for more. That's sort of my, my big takeaway. Anyway, thought that that might be interesting for you guys to hear. So, yeah, let's do the outro. All right, that's it. That's the whole episode. That's all I got. Hope you enjoyed. If you are listening on Anchor, you can leave me a voice message, anchor.fm slash Pelham's Wasteland, and I will play it in an episode. If you're listening on YouTube, hope you liked it. Maybe uh, like the video and subscribe. That would be super cool. If you want to get in contact with me otherwise, I am at cows from Powis on Twitter, which is uh, at cows like cows from as in from and Powis as in P-O-W-Y-S. So yeah, hope you enjoyed. I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.